Welcome to another Dementia Dialogue podcast, where we are discussing changing and adapting when dementia enters a person's life, one of four themes we are exploring in our series, Living the Dementia Journey. Our goal in sharing personal stories is to help us better understand what it means to encounter dementia, to gain some insight, and to learn how we can live fully in the face of such a challenge. Dementia Dialogue thanks our sponsor and partner, the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Our guest today is Louise Milligan, whose husband Gord passed away a few months before our conversation last November. Gord was diagnosed with dementia seven years ago at the age of 64. Louise lives in London, Ontario. As Gord's journey progressed, Louise sought out additional information and support from the local Alzheimer's Society, other community services, and healthcare providers. Marshalling these resources can be a challenge to a family. Our conversation also touched upon assisted living and long-term care, but we will be sharing these portions in future episodes on the theme, The System Journey. As you listen, Keep in mind the word permission, which came up early in Louise and Gord's conversation. It seems to emerge as a theme throughout Louise and Gord's journey and enabled Louise to make adaptations for Gord, her daughters, and herself, seemingly without the guilt and misgivings that so often surrounds dementia. Thank you very much for well, you're welcome. for uh, joining us today. As we mentioned on our in our conversation, the theme that we're looking at uh, in this particular series in the dementia dialogue is changing and adapting to the condition of dementia. So I'm wondering whether we might just start out by you describing a little bit about yourself, about your husband's situation, and also uh, your family context. Sure. So my husband and I met, oh, it seems like a lifetime ago. We were both students, both fish biologists, and that's where we met. And our careers took off, and it was great. And we had two children, Emily and Annie. And then in December of 2010, that world turned totally upside down, because that's when my husband was diagnosed with dementia. He was 64 at the time. Our children were 9 and 14 at the time. He was a university professor, and people would say, if you exercise your brain daily and you have all that plasticity in your brain, that you'd be somewhat less likely to develop dementia. Well, that didn't apply in his case. So life changed for sure, for sure. Um, He stopped working because he was deemed unfit to work. Interestingly enough, when the doctor said that to him, it was just like this great relief for him because he was struggling a lot at work because he couldn't do it. And he couldn't understand why he couldn't manage. He couldn't manage to go into his lecture hall and give a coherent lecture or plug his laptop in. Things that he could do, had been doing for 30 odd years without any issues. And he was frustrated and stressed because he couldn't do it. I saw the stress and I didn't understand why he was so stressed out about doing things that he had done seamlessly for so long. It was almost like once the doctor said, you're off work, until you're able to return to work. And I don't think he'll be able to return to work. And his whole posture changed. It was like he sat up straight and it was like this huge burden off his shoulders. And he was so relieved to um, not go back to work that when it came time to clean his office out, he didn't even want to go back and do it. So up until then, I have to be honest, I was very frustrated with him. And what I saw is his checking out because he came a bit more distant a bit more apathetic, but somewhat disengaged. And I couldn't understand why. So it was causing a challenge in our relationship, that's for sure. 
And then once the diagnosis came down, I was like, oh, okay, Louise, that's what's going on. So from my perspective as well, it helped me understand what was happening. Now, what was the path to the diagnosis? Like, how would you have How we got to the diagnosis? Well, that was a very so. interesting um, journey. In 2008, we were on our way to Toronto Airport, and we got into a car crash. I, my husband was driving. I banged my head. I don't recall any of it. At that point in time, he was worried. Why did he make that judgment call to make that turn when he knew it wasn't safe? His mother had dementia. So he was worried at the time that this was the beginning of something not right. So he made an appointment with his family doc and then went in and had a CAT scan and told me that everything was fine. There was nothing to worry about. So that was like, okay, so I'll check that and put it in the closet because there's nothing to worry about. I, at the time, said, oh, he's stressed out, therefore, when he gets stressed, you yeah. get forgetful. Not realizing that the cause of his stress was the fact that he was forgetful. He had a very compassionate and kind department chair at work who saw what was happening. She had walked this journey with her mother and she knew what was going on. She had several chats with him about his teaching, because it showed in his teaching primarily. Um, and, and he would come home and say things like, Moira, that was her depart department's chair name, wants me to go see the doctor. She's worried about my driving. And I'm going, we live in London, he was working in Guelph, so he was driving every day. I'm going, well, what's going on here? I don't understand. So finally he says, Moira has made an appointment for me. I'd like you to come with me. And this was the workplace doctor at, uh, at Guelph. So I said, for sure I'm going. And we went. And she had written up a letter explaining to the doctor the things that she had seen at work that were causing concern. So um, Gord read that, and he said, oh, yeah, well, yeah, it's probably fair. And I looked at this man who I thought, wow, okay. The doctor administered that mini mental test, you know, you have to spell world backwards, etc. And when I saw that, he struggled with that and couldn't draw that clock that showed 10 to 2. I, my heart just sank. So that's what led us up to the diagnosis, right? I had been in communication with his family doc expressing some concerns about odd behaviors, but because of patient confidentiality, of course, we never really communicated. So I really don't know what happened between him and her at those visits. It could have been that she said there's something going on and he forgot or chose not to tell me. I don't know. So once we got that diagnosis from the workplace doctor, although he didn't really say dementia, he just says not fit to work. We went to the family doc and, and it was kind of surprising in many ways that she got the report and we met with her and she says oh well here's a prescription we'll start with this drug and then we'll see you in a month and I was like whoa, whoa 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 what are we giving the drugs for what's the diagnosis here and she kind of looked at me and she says well it's Alzheimer's disease of course and there was no here's supports there's no this is a hard diagnosis to hear this is going to be challenging here's some places you can go do you have questions none of that just here's some pills, come back and see me in a month. So anyway, after that, Gordon and I had a very good conversation. We stopped for coffee and he gave me a, a huge gift at that time. I didn't realize how much of a gift it was until after the fact. Is he said, this is going to be really, really hard for you and Annie and Emily. And you need to make the right decisions for you and Annie and Emily so that your lives can move forward. And at the time, I didn't appreciate how powerful a gift that was because he gave me permission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? which was wonderful for him mm -hmm. to do so. And I think probably because he saw what his mom went through and he had that awareness of what his path looks like, would look like, that he uh, was able to give me that gift. That's really interesting because so often hear of people that extract a promise from the other person to, you know, care for them always, care for them at home, you know, be with them. and Don't uh, put me in one of those homes. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting 
that your husband... Well, I think that speaks to the kind of person he was. Yes. You know, he was a very caring and, and generous man, and he recognized, particularly for our children, who were young, only 9 and 14 at the time, that this was going to be really too hard for them to manage. Yes, right? yes. Because, again, he saw what his mother went through. Although his mother was in Calgary at the time and we were in, in Ontario, he still saw and experienced what she went through and, and didn't want his children having to, to go through that. I'm interested... Uh, you know, so you had coffee after mm -hmm. this visit with this doctor and who just kind of dropped the... The bomb. Dropped the bomb and said, see you later. How did yeah. you talk about how you were going yeah. to approach sharing this diagnosis with your daughters? Well, we did talk or? about that a bit. Um, Gord was very reluctant to put that burden on them at yes. that point in time, right? I said, well, what are we going to tell them about why you're not going to work? He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm retiring, which is basically what he did. I said, oh, all right. He says, I said, but at some point it's going to become obvious. And by the time it comes obvious, it may not be that he's able to have that conversation. But he didn't want them constantly looking at him differently, constantly being vigilant all the time, because he thought that wasn't fair to them. And at the time, I understood. But what made me sad in hindsight is that they never really then had the opportunity to talk to him about the disease and how it was affecting him. Yes, right. yes, they, because once it, they became aware, then the disease yeah, might so have Yes, so once I did sit down and, and talk to him about what was going on, you know, I think they had kind of figured it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was, yeah, so that was, that was a lost opportunity, which was, but it was his choice, so I had to honor that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you yourself kind of adapted or coped or what, you know, what did you do to... Uh, well, to the first thing I, I did is I had to learn more about the disease, yes. right, and understand what it was, how it was going to progress, what I could do as a partner to help him, and also what I needed to be able to do as a mother to keep my children healthy and growing and um, whatnot. So I turned to the Alzheimer's Society, which was a great resource. They had lots of information, lots of very wise people here who were able to help me a great deal. Gord, being a scientist, was very interested in the disease, so he also learned a lot and connected himself, actually, with a clinical trial down at the Aging Brain Clinic at Parkwood Hospital. Right. And that was really quite good. Um, it gave him purpose because he said, okay, you know, this may not help me, but it might help others. You know, maybe if our children should develop because he was concerned that there might be a genetic predisposition in his family. He says, I want to be able to do something for them. So it was really quite a good a good experience for both of us. It was it took time, but it was okay. It was okay to give that time. And one of the arrangements he made that when he died, that he would donate his brain so they could do the neuropathology on it and understand more about the disease. And, and that's what happened at the end when he did die. So I supported him in that, and I had to because the way the study worked, she had to have a care partner who could make observations about okay. behaviors and, and things along those lines. So it was very much both of us engaged and that worked really well it opened a lot of doors and we met a lot of interesting people along the way and gave us lots of different opportunities for different kinds of supports you know so it was really very good for us I modified my work life such that I tried to take on a little bit less responsibility so that I had a bit more flexibility should something arise I was able to take whatever time was necessary to manage it I can't say I did that with a great deal of success, but I tried. And as the disease progressed, I worked within the system to get opportunities. So he did attend the day program at McCormick Home, which at first he wasn't so keen on, but then he quite enjoyed it. Um, so that day program was a big help. And, and so he went there three or four days a week. And then um, it became clear that he would need a bit more support at home. So I was able to get in a um, personal support worker to spend the days with him when he wasn't at day program. And then when the bus came, it came off and it 9.30 in the morning to get someone in for like an hour and a half or two so allow me to get to work. So I put those kinds of things in place to help take the burden 
off. Because one of the things I found with my children is Gord would often get home from the day program 3.30ish, 4 o'clock. I often didn't get home from work till after 5. So there's about an hour or so where it was him and the girls. And at the time, I didn't appreciate it until they shared with me afterwards that that was a tough hour for them because they felt they had to constantly be watching Dad, that he wasn't going to do anything weird. And unfortunately, he did say some things that were harsh, and I tried to say, it's not your dad, it's the disease. Yes. And still, when you're young, it, it hurts when your dad says things that aren't yes. particularly nice. Yes. So there were some, it wasn't all rosy for heaven's no. And there were some challenges along that way. And we tried our best to talk them through um, and help them understand what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it became clear to me somewhere around the fall of 2012, late in the fall of 2012, that I just couldn't manage with Gord at home anymore. It was just too much. It was too much stress on our family. So it was a fairly rapid... Uh, oh, it was very rapid. Rapid yeah. situation between a diagnosis and... Two years he, later, it was yes. quite clear he couldn't stay at home. Yes. Because things like, well, what, what the tipping point was is he set the microwave on fire. I see. And that was like, okay, we're in danger here. And he didn't know what to do should there be a fire. He didn't know how to pick up the phone and call 911. So it was clear that, okay, this is not safe. So we were on the CCAC list yes. for long-term yes. care. I had done that early on, recognizing that, yeah, it can be a long time. So the sooner right. I get in, the better. And up until then, we had done some respite care. So he had gone to stay for either at McCormick Home or other, or McGarrow Place for a week or so at a time to give us a okay. bit of reprieve. And so I took advantage of those opportunities. So in January of 2013, I had made arrangements to move him into assisted living because there wasn't a long-term care spot available yet. But I knew he couldn't stay with us anymore. So I found assisted living that felt they could manage. And at that point, then he started going to day program six days a week. And then on that seventh day, which was typically a Sunday, I would we would spend the day together doing things. So it wasn't like he was abandoned or anything like that, but it just took the intense pressure off of us to have to manage the day-to-day -day challenges of living with someone with dementia. And it's, it's interesting, you know, his willingness to take uh, advantage of the day program, mm -hmm. or it seemed then he was fairly um, accepting the yeah, idea the of stages, living in the yeah. assisted living He was, situation. I mean, I made it look, I took all of the bedding and stuff that he was familiar with yeah. and made it as familiar as possible, yeah. and he didn't object at all. Yeah. It's almost like he, he was honoring that in uh, some ways, permission I that he had given yeah I, I some, in some earlier. ways I think so I don't, I don't know if consciously no. he was aware but somewhere yeah, deep inside yeah. maybe there was that yeah. awareness piece yeah yeah and and then that and he stayed there until July of 2013 when there was a crisis and he had to move into fortunately the spot we wanted was available and he moved into long-term care okay and again it precipitated quite quickly yes. from everything being okay to things being a bit challenging to things being impossible for yes. them to manage yes yes how did you you know, you mentioned, you know, stress. It, it would seem to me that there'd be a tremendous sense of, a, you know, our, our, a loss of control or... Oh, know. total loss of control. Yeah. Absolutely. I just didn't know which way was up or down. I didn't know what the best thing to do was. Fortunately, the, the physician who was caring for him in the clinical trial, Michael Board, it was wonderful, and he was a great support to us throughout this. I called him my knight in shining armor because he came and rescued us from that uh, Form 1 uh, okay. Victoria Hospital. Okay. Yes. Um, and was able to negotiate and, and discuss with the assisted living home to take Gord back. Yes. So he was great, great support there. And at the time, I think it was relatively new, or maybe it was just uh, forming a cohesive unit, the behavioral support yes. unit. So we engaged with them to help understand how we can respond to behavior. So it was a bit of a training, training for me. Not so much training for Gord, because you can't really 
trains. He goes no, to no, train, no. but training for those people for who are interacting time. with yes, him to exactly. say, okay, if he like if he grabs your hand tightly and you pull your hand back, he just hangs on more tightly. So if you just let him hold it and then start with your other hand rubbing the back of his hand, it relaxes and releases, and then whatever. Because otherwise it could escalate up, right? yes. and this just de-escalates. Yes. So as it turned out, there were simple little things. So I had made a, basically a two-by-four board with things that he could play with, you know, like... Um, nuts and screws. Nuts and yeah. screws and, yeah, and bolts yes. and that kind of yes. stuff, and hung it on the wall so when he so they could be distracted to that, and he would play with that for a little bit. So those kinds of things helped, but that took some time to get there. Yes, yes. Yes. It sounded, though, you know, that you really... Um, did take advantage of or seek out and find, you know, some people to provide support to you. Oh, absolutely. And some information absolutely. to... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, to give you some strategies on how to... Because I knew, I mean, this was foreign territory to me, and I had no experience, and I knew I couldn't do it by myself, and I needed to learn. So through the learning series at the Alzheimer's Society, I learned a tremendous amount about the disease, about... And there's lots of things that are common with people with disease, and there's lots of things that are different. But those commonalities are enough that you can learn strategies to cope. I'm wondering, how did your daughters feel then at this stage of the disease? Not that you can speak for them, but no, well, your I observation think that as a mother. As about... a mother, I did talk to them about... Before Gord moved out of the house into the assisted living, I talked to them about, you know, this is what I'm thinking, what do you think? And they were like, oh, what a relief. They were relieved. They didn't want their dad to go, but they understood that he needed to because it was just too much for him at home. Um, they found that move to long-term care really hard, only because it was difficult to visit seeing other people, right? Because you have this vision of folks in long-term care, you know, sitting in wheelchairs and staring blankly out into space. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's, there were folks like that. Yeah. And it's hard to see your dad in a situation. I mean, I found it hard. I mean, every time I would go there, I'd have to steal myself and go and, and visit because it's not, a, it's not easy. It's not easy going there. Gord died in June of He died June 2nd of uh, 2017, yes. 2017, yeah. And how, how was that in terms of the months preceding his death? What? Well, I knew, I mean, there are certain things that happen along that journey that you kind of think, okay, the end is getting closer. One of it is he lost his mobility totally, so he was totally wheelchair-bound. So that was one thing. And he had trouble feeding himself. So he went from needing to be fed, you know, regular food to the minced food because yes. he was having some challenges chewing to having some challenges swallowing. So he went to like the mushy baby food kind of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then he just totally lost interest in eating. So when that happened, when he was struggling with the swallowing and, you know, pocketing the food, yes. I saw it yes. enough with other residents to know that it wasn't long after that happened that the end would be near. Right. So that started happening sometime probably late April, May, and by the early June he had died. And how how were your, you know, in your family situation mm -hmm. with your daughters at, at the end of life? How? Well, I, I told them point blank, you know, that your dad was dying and this is what's going on. And did they want to be with him at the end? And both of them decided they didn't want to, which was fine because I know yes. they didn't want to remember their dad that way. And I yeah. understand that. So I would stay with him for as long as I could. I wasn't going to do the 24-7 hour, 24-7 vigil. No, it's no, a, it, yeah. was, it was too hard. If he had 10 siblings. Yes, perhaps more. if we could, yes. yeah, sort of take turns. Away. Yes. But I did have kids, and I mean, they were older by then, but still, you know, my youngest was only 15, so that's still young. 
All right, and so the night that he, the morning, well, he died early in the morning, and that night before, we used to have a thing where we would, on Friday nights, the end of the week, kids would get a pizza and be watching their movie or something, and we'd sit in the front room, and Gord would have his glass of scotch, and I would have a glass of wine, and, and we would just sit and chat about our week and, and catch up. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to do that. So I took in some scotch, and a glass of scotch, and, and you know those little sponges that they often will yes, use to moisten? Yes, so I yes, put some, okay, yeah. dip that sponge in the scotch, yeah. and, and put it in his mouth, and he kind of went... And so oh. he was enjoying that taste of scotch, and that was really quite lovely. Yeah. That was lovely. Yeah. So I left that night around 10. The nurse, before her shift ended, said, well, you know, he's, because they breathe. Like, it's really hard to watch them breathe yeah, in the very the end. There's like, <gasps> it's like it's hard work. And so she started uh, giving him a bit of morphine to help ease yes. that, that breathing. Okay. And then by 3 in the morning, he had died. Well, that sounds like pretty good care. It was excellent yeah. care. Yeah, to it was excellent that kind care. Of yeah. Respiratory stress yeah. is yeah. so important. It was, yes. And they had had a bit of oxygen, having him some oxygen, again, for comfort, to help relieve that. <gasps> it wasn't to revive. It was just to comfort, to help relieve that work of breathing. Um, I think we're towards the end of sure. the interview, uh, Louise. I'm wondering, one of the things that uh, you know, we're hoping to achieve through this mm-hmm. podcast series is to help people acquire a deeper understanding of what they what they might be faced with in their sure. situation. I'm wondering if there's any particular lessons learned that oh you goodness. would want to uh, leave with our listeners? I would we... say, if nothing else, be prepared. Because if you're not, you can be very scared. Yes. And there's lots of opportunities. You can go online and, and learn from um, materials that are online. Talk to other people who are in this situation. Learn from them and learn from professionals who live this day in and day out through their work, like folks at the Alzheimer's Society or memory clinics or family doctors or whatever resources that you have. And don't be afraid to reach out because it can be really isolating. Thanks, Louise. If you would like more information about our series and the research underlying it, please go to our website, dementiadialogue.ca. You will also find there useful resources to help you learn about living with the dementia journey. You are also invited to join us on Facebook at Dementia Dialogue. Feel free to make a comment or perhaps to share a bit of your experience with dementia. Thanks again to our sponsor for today's episode, the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Please join us for our next podcast on Dementia Dialogue as we continue our conversation on changing and adapting as part of the dementia journey. My name is David Harvey. You are invited to take part in a call-in show Dementia Dialogue is hosting at the conclusion of this podcast series. Please go to DementiaDialogue.ca for more details.